in the last decade, the fertility rates have gone to European levels. Uh, demographically, uh, the United States now looks a lot like Denmark. And the suggestion is that if there's anything to this experience worldwide, then that foreshadows a much more secular uh, United States. So if you are an American and you're concerned with uh, religion, this is a very pressing issue uh, indeed. It's watering time, everybody! It is time for Apollos Watered! A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having one of our... Deep Conversations. With historian and author Philip Jenkins. Is secularism a bad or good thing? Some of you might look at what's going on in Afghanistan and conclude that secularism is a great thing. Who would ever want to return to that type of religious fundamentalism that is so tribal and barbaric? While there are others that are in the religious world that see all that secularism brings with it, all of the different questioning of sexual mores and upturning of families, and they might say, how could secularism ever be a good thing? No matter where you fall on the secularism spectrum, this is a conversation that you want to be a part of. Because secularism is affecting every single one of us, hence why Dr. Jenkins is on this show. Now, Dr. Jenkins, for those that aren't familiar with him, he is a Welshman with a doctorate from Cambridge in history. He's taught at Penn State since 1980 and is also a distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies of Religion. He's a well-known commentator on religion past and present. By himself, he has written about 30 books, including The New Faces of Christianity, Believing the Bible in the Global South, and God's Continent, Christianity, Islam, and Europe's Religious Crisis as well as the lost history of Christianity, Jesus Wars, just to name a few. It was his book, The Next Christendom, that's how I became acquainted with him, and that book won a number of honors. USA Today named it as one of the top 10 religion books of 2002, and Christianity Today described The Next Christendom as a contemporary classic. He has published articles and op-ed pieces in many media outlets across the U.S. and Europe, including such periodicals as the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, New Republic, Foreign Policy, First Things, and Christian Century. The Economist has called him one of America's best scholars of religion. And over the last decade, Jenkins has participated in several hundred interviews with the mass media, newspapers, radio, and television. He's been interviewed on Fox's The Beltway Boys and has appeared on a number of CNN documentaries and news specials covering a variety of topics. He is much heard on talk radio, including multiple appearances on NPR's All Things Considered and on various BBC and RTE programs. In North America, he's been a guest on the widely syndicated radio programs of Diane Rehm, Michael Medved, and James Kennedy. He's appeared on NPR's Fresh Air, and now he is on Apollos Watered, the highlight of his life, to discuss his newest book, Fertility and Faith, and the power of secularism in the world, and how it's affecting the very formation and shape of the family. 
This was an earlier conversation that we had this past March. And I have to say that this is one of our deeper conversations. It's one that requires us to think deeply because it has dramatic effects. This isn't one that we find on the surface. This is one where we have to put on our thinking caps and think about what he's advocating, what he's saying, what he's writing, and what may happen in our contemporary culture. Because we as Christians need to be equipped to live in this world, and we need to be aware of all the things that are going on around us that might be affecting us, those currents that we've talked about that carry us along, that have disastrous collateral damage and affecting us and the people around us in very negative ways. Too often, we're just trying to keep up and we can't think deeply, but this is an opportunity to change that a little bit at a time. As my wife likes to say when whenever we're talking about subjects like this, she says our goal is to reverse the river of discipleship one drop at a time. It's true. These kind of conversations enable us to reverse the river, to think about the forces of the world and how they are bearing upon us and shaping how we think and how we live in the middle of it, especially when it comes to secularism. Dr. Jenkins advocates a great deal of things. But his central thesis is one that affects every single one of us. It shapes us each day and how we view the family and how we are shaped by it. So I would encourage you to listen in and enjoy this conversation that I had with Dr. Jenkins as we talk about his book and the findings of that book, Fertility and Faith. Happy listening. Philip, welcome to Apollos Watered. Thank you. Very good to be here. It is a delight and, again, uh, an honor to really speak to you. I've read your works over the years, had a huge impact on my life. So I, I'm, I'm just real excited to be in this conversation. Great. But here we go. We have what we call our Fast Five. Are you ready? Maybe. <laughs> so here we go. First question is this. Sushi? Or tacos? Very definitely tacos. Uh, you'd be expelled from Texas otherwise. <laughs> so you're in Texas right now? Uh, not as I speak, but normally. <laughs> so yeah, Texas sushi is not really allowed in Texas unless it has beef in it, right? I'm Probably. Okay, here we go. Here's the next question then. Favorite 80s movie? Or do you have one? Oh boy, I could give many uh, uh, many examples um, of that. Um, I think does Mate One belong in the eighties? I think it does. I don't, I, what is that one? Mate One. Uh, it's a great John Sayles film uh, about a uh, a strike and industrial history in the tw- uh, in the nineteen twenties. It's a great movie. Oh, I, I'm going to write that down and make sure that I see it. I, I, I want to see that. I've not heard of that one, but I want to hear that one. So here we go. You're, a, you're really a historian. I mean, you're, in demog- you're into demography, but world history, and I know you're not an American, but an American history, because you seem to have just, you're all over there, but you know a lot of stuff. World history or American history? I work on both. It's very hard to, uh, to say uh, America in the world. No possible answer. Okay. All right. And then what is your then just favorite absolute period of time to study? 
again, many, uh, uh, many possible answers, but I would probably say the uh, centuries or so at the end of the Roman Empire in the West and the barbarians and the Dark Age. Oh, all right. That's cool. Now, how about this one? What is a weird habit that your wife says you have? Agreeing to speak to podcasts. <laughs> that is the best answer I think I've received <laughs> for this show. And how about this one? Last question of the of the of the I mean of the fast five. If you were a restaurant, what restaurant would you be and why? Uh, definitely Greek. A Greek restaurant. Why? I very much like uh, Greek food, but um, at this precise moment, uh, the uh, the restaurant I'd like to be is anyone not in the years 2020 or 21. <laughs> one that you can go into and just have food and not have to worry about anything. That's a great You remember those. I do. I do. I do. Now, let's hear a little bit of your story. Where are you from and what made you want to get into studying history and specifically demography and, and looking at global Christianity? But let's hear your story. Well, I grew up in uh, uh, Wales. I came to the United States in uh, uh, 1980. I worked in lots of different disciplines in uh, history and social science and others. I got more into uh, religion and then in the uh, uh, end of the last century, I got very much into the idea of global history, which was kind of a new field uh, at that point. And the more uh, I got into it, the more I found that uh, demography and fertility and birth rates and so on were such a powerful uh, predictor and that nobody was really uh, working on them. Um, and uh, that led to the book that we're talking about today, which is Fertility and Faith. So how many books have you written? Uh, single authored books, about 30. 30. And so, I mean, I'm sure each one is like its own child, but out of all the ones that you've written outside of this one, which was the one that you really... Ah, you really enjoyed, I mean, I'm sure you've written and enjoyed writing each one, but which is the one that's really the one that you treasure the most? One of the ones I really enjoyed was the book uh, Jesus Wars, uh, which is about the uh, church councils in the uh, fifth century and uh, how um, orthodoxy about uh, Christ's identity was made. And mm. uh, that was the my favorite because you ended up dealing with so many uh, individuals and characters and people um, in a way that you often can't when you're dealing with ideas or movements. Mm. And that's an area that a lot of people just don't really think about in our modern world. So w when you're researching these things, do you feel like you have a hard time explaining this to really, I mean, non-academics that they can understand it? Um, that's a basic point in writing a book. Um, which is that you really have to get it in what you might call the elevator test, um, which is to uh, explain it in the time it takes you to go up 10 stories in an elevator. Mm. That's not easy. Not at all. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you can't do it in relatively simple form, then there's something wrong with the structure of the book. And maybe it's too complicated uh, or something, or you haven't got the point of the book. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that in explaining a lot of different things from now on. I love that illustration. But let, let's talk about your book, Fertility and Faith, The Demographic Revolution and the Transformation of World Religion. What was the impetus behind this book? And it's a fascinating book, but what was the impetus behind it? Well, like I said, I was working on uh, global Christianity. I was working on uh, Christianity worldwide. And um, I 
There was an observation, uh, which was that uh, birth rates were falling in many parts of the uh, the world, and the consensus was they were falling in Europe. And uh, what I found when I looked uh, at different countries was, no, they were falling in all sorts of unsuspected uh, countries, and that there was a very close um, correlation between birth rates and levels of faith. In other words, and it got to the point where it was almost like a parlor game, uh, which is uh, what what is the birth rate in X country? And I can tell you um, what the, uh, how well religious institutions are doing, um, how committed people are to religion, how advanced secularization is. And uh, it, it, it really became a very uh, predictable, very reliable kind of tool. So you so what are some of the findings? I mean, and it and it's varied because you're not just hitting Europe, you're talking about Africa, you're, you're talking about the world, really, and you're noticing this correlation between secularization and birth rates, as you just said. And one of the things that I noticed in your book, you said it's it's very important that we have a right definition of what secularization is. Right. So what is that definition that you prefer using in understanding secularization? Yeah, when people talk about secularization, they sometimes take it as meaning abandoning religion as such. And that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm talking about abandoning institutional organized religion. Now, there might be a second stage, and often is, where people move from that to um, abandoning God, if you like. Um, And that's not what I'm talking about. You can have a society that is very uh, religious and might be kind of spiritual, but not religious. Um, but people have nothing to do with religious institutions, and uh, th- th- that is uh, what I call uh, what I call secularization. T- traditionally, people used to think of the whole secular thing as something that hit uh, Europe. But very early on, I made a discovery which kind of uh, mapped the road for me. Which I was looking at a country which uh, everyone has an opinion on, which is Iran. And you think of it in terms of, you know, Islamic revolution and religious fanaticism and also very high fertility rates and lots of kids. Um, And my comment was, well, myth, myth, myth. If you look at Iran, it has a very low birth rate, very low fertility rate. And actually, as you might expect, it is way more secular than uh, uh, than we might expect from the common stereotype. And my thought was, well, gee, if that's true of Iran, what about every other country in the world? If it's true there, isn't it true everywhere? And we can talk about that. But so uh, Iran was actually a great way of getting into that. So studying this and seeing the birth rates and seeing secularization and how it is affecting, I mean, because most people don't think of secularization of birth rates. Those aren't the first things that come to their mind. I mean, really, though, what precipitated? I mean, I know you talked about that briefly. You touched on it. But why is that really important? Not just precipitated why you did it and why you you wrote the book, but why is that important for us to understand? For one thing, it provides a very good uh, predictor. If you like to um, cut out the middleman, um, it uh, provides an interesting warning sign of the decline of religious institutions in particular countries, including the United States. And for many years, people have uh, said, well, you know, the United States is different. It's a very wealthy society, but it's a relatively high fertility society. And um, that correlates with high religious practice. In the last decade, the fertility rates have gone to European levels. Uh, demographically, uh, the United States now looks a lot like Denmark. 
And the suggestion is that if there's anything to this experience worldwide, then that foreshadows a much more secular uh, United States. So if you are an American and you're concerned with uh, religion, this is a very pressing issue uh, indeed. Because it's showing that there is a movement away from institutional religion, as you alluded to. But you said it's not a removal yet, yet an indicator yet, of God. So, so go back for a second. Sure. Talk about what that means. If they're going away from institutions, are we talking about the spiritual but not religious? As a base, let's take the uh, uh, society that people always talk about when they talk about um, fertility, which is Europe. In the 1960s, fertility rates uh, started crashing in Europe. And that was the time when the churches started crashing in, mm. uh, in Europe. So in my book, um, I use something called the Rule of Ten, which is if you look at the peak of organized religion about 1960 and compared to today, then uh, by all the main measures, you divide by 10 and you get the present situation. If you look at the number of vocations, the number of people attending church, divide by 10, and you get a very rapid period of uh, secularization. I, I have various reasons why I think that's uh, happening. And at the time, everyone said, well, gee, that's, that's Europe. There are all sorts of peculiar European uh, factors, but it needn't affect anywhere, anywhere else. And then it affected lots of other places. It affected East Asia. It affected Latin America. It affected the Middle East. And people in America said, well, it, it won't affect us. We, we are different, American exceptionalism. And just since 2010, oh, yes, it, uh, it is definitely um, affecting us. And uh, like I say, I use the, the analogy of uh, um, Scandinavia. You know, think of all the stereotypes we have of Scandinavia, Scandinavian religion, most secular society in the world. And that echoes through not just religious practice, but the relationship of religion and um, law. When can you make laws despite what all the churches say? And in the flat face of opposition from the churches, well, in Scandinavia, in Europe, it's very easy. And I suspect that in that sense, we are heading for a very secular setup in the uh, U.S. So what, then, I mean, hearing that, not just in the U.S., but you're talking globally as well, because you talk about uh, some of the countries with the lowest birth rate, which would be in Western Europe, if I remember correctly, and you talk about at least the countries with the highest birth weight, uh, originally you were mentioning like Uganda. Am I, am I correct right. in that? Sure. Yep. So in referring to that, you're saying that because, and when, let's talk about the birth rate here for a second, because you use an abbreviation, you talk about the, uh, the TF, um, total fertility rate. Right. And you talk about the replacement rate. So this is right. why this is important because if, if in a, in a country and you have a, a couple and they have, Two children, that's just the replacement rate. That means that as time goes on, those people will replace, the, the children will replace the adults within society, thus enabling things to continue on. But when it goes below the birth rate, well, that's 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 a kind of a harbinger for trouble because that has economic problems, religious problems, so many other problems. Go ahead. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and so the magic number that I, uh, I use a lot is 2.1, which is a couple has, on average, 2.1 children, and you, you add that little bit of extra to allow for child mortality and so on. Right. In the 1960s, rates in Europe fell very dramatically to 1.4. In some countries, they were down to 1.2, 1.1. And the problem is that means you get a, a much more aged society 
Now, the great news is you get a much more stable society. You know, 50-year-old people uh, tend not to form gangs and go out and have fights in the street, and that's, that's very fine. But also, often they retire, they, uh, they need to have their health and their pensions uh, paid. Who does that? Well, uh, you have to bring in new people uh, uh, to do that, and society cannot sustain itself without that kind of major dose of, uh, of immigration. You also have very high fertility uh, states with lots and lots of young people, and that's wonderful in its way, but often they're quite turbulent in, um, in, terms, of, uh, in terms of crime and disorder. So um, there are lots of possible situations that arise from this demographic fact, um, but I'm particularly concerned with the decline that particularly hit in uh, Europe and, as I say, the religious implications. But you come back to that absolutely right figure, t- uh, uh, the total fertility rate, when its replacement is 2.1, everything just jogs along. But what's happening is in many countries in the world, not all, it is falling way, way below that. The U.S. rate at the moment is about 1.7, and that poses some real issues. So taking that, though, because one of the things that you do talk about when you talk about, yeah, I mean, it has massive repercussions, but you're also seeing a shift because we have the, the world refugee crisis, we have immigrants, we have all of this transitioning going on right now. And you're seeing some of those rates change. So when I hear you say the, the rates have gone down in many of these secular European countries, but you're also seeing an influx of immigrants, which are traditionally known to have children, and you're seeing them having larger families. So are you seeing then a shift in what's going on in those, those European countries as more immigrants are coming in and in some ways upsetting the apple cart, if you will, by having them having more children. And you're also seeing a rise in those religions. I see within France and within Denmark and the Netherlands. I mean, are you seeing that or is that something that's just an anomaly or something that might be almost a red herring? Yeah, um, you have the new populations and they bring in their new customs and often new religions. Um, So it means, for instance, that you have considerably more Muslims in in Europe than you used to. And, you know, that's perfectly uh, fine. But one uh, one consequence of that is uh, over a generation or two, those immigrants become European in their fertility styles. And they also have that fertility drop. So you have to bring in more and more people from um, from outside. Now, as I say, there's nothing wrong with that in itself, except that it foreshadows real change. It means that there are much larger Muslim populations in Western Europe. And also, and something we don't pay attention to, new and quite large Christian populations in the Arab Gulf, in Saudi Arabia, they also have those declining fertility rates. They need people to do the work, and they end up bringing in Christians from India and the Philippines. Suddenly, those countries have acquired major Christian populations that haven't been there for 1,500 years. Mm. So when a country uh, has these very low fertility rates, it means lots and lots of religious changes, some of which we're only starting to think about. Um, when When religion is associated more and more with immigrants... That just redraws the map in ways that we're only just starting to think about. So it's not just happening. I mean, you're saying that secularization is causing all religious groups' fertility rates to go down across the world. Now, let me be precise here. What I'm saying is secularization and um, fertility decline are happening together. Okay. I, I am not saying A causes B or B causes A. 
Um, what I'm saying is th- uh, they march together, and we, we can figure out why, uh, why that's happening. But what's interesting for me is, uh, you know, you look at some, um, you look at a country like Saudi Arabia, as far as we can tell, there's not a trace of secularization as yet. Um, but the fertility rate is declining sharply. Let's see how that's going to uh, pan out. What it does mean is those countries are going to be much more religiously diverse because of um, because of immigration. So you're saying then that a lot of conservative religious groups have a higher fertility rate. Is that correct? That's uh, that's traditionally the case. Yep. So what do we draw from that? I mean, on one level, I think I've been a pastor for many, many years, and I, I remember going and reading just through the scripture where the, the nation of Israel has the ark of God return and David sends them home with raisin cakes, which is an aphrodisiac, basically saying, go home and multiply. The blessing of God is upon us. And yet we're seeing some places where that seems to be going down. Is that, I mean, I know it's hard to draw necessary complete causation or correlations with that, but it seems like in many ways that the blessing of God is removed from that. And again, I know that's not an academic exercise per se, but is that something that you're, I don't know if that's something you're seeing or would you agree with that? Would you disagree with that? I mean, what would you say? Well, you know, let's, uh, let's think it through. I think the two processes tend to work together very closely and it's very hard to tell which causes which, but think of a country like uh, Italy, for example, which is a country I write a lot about. In the 1960s, it has a very high fertility rate. It's a very religious country. In the 1970s, things change dramatically within the space of not even 10 years, like five years. Um, Family size contracts, fertility rates drop, and religious practice collapses. Mm -hmm. So that could work either way. It could be that religion declines and people think, you know, um, we don't have to have uh, children. We can be much more open to uh, contraception, to abortion, never mind what the, uh, the priests used to say. We don't have to think in terms of these larger families. We can just be us. We can just be a little nuclear family. Fine. That's one possibility. The other possibility is it's only when you take children out of the equation that you realize how central children are to what churches and other religious institutions do. They are the reason why many people stay in contact with those institutions um, and don't just uh, uh, drift off from the community. Those children go through the system. They go to the same schools. People define themselves by t- in terms of children and, uh, and family. Take the children out of the picture. What happens? There's no longer any need for people to stay in touch with churches or synagogues or whatever. Uh, They don't have to think about putting them through First Communion, Bar Mitzvah uh, classes. Um, And I don't know which comes first, the drop in fertility or the drop in faith, but in a sense, it doesn't matter when it all happens in the space of about five to 10 years. Uh, it's, It's really hard to measure. What I can tell you is that they drop together and the one is a really good indicator uh, of the other. And then there's all sorts of other consequences that flow from that, which is once people are cut off from the uh, religious institution, they're much more prepared to go against that institution on moral issues, legal issues. Italy, for instance, you can just uh, trace a series of referenda on things like contraception, divorce, abortion, same-sex marriage, where people become more and more 
willing to go against what the churches say. And the more that happens, the more they regard the churches as something that just doesn't belong in any kind of political or moral role. So you're talking about a social revolution. Um, and the fact it's happened more or less in our lifetimes maybe prevents us seeing just what a historical, unprecedented revolution that is. And that's one thing that I was really caught in reading your book. It's not that it just moved over time in our lifetimes, but it's how quickly it's moved in our lifetimes. I mean, you were citing stats from 1999 all the way up to now, and it was a precipitous decline. I mean, not something that I am aware of historically, and I, and I can't believe how fast it's happened just even between generations. So when you talk about a social revolution, what can we gain from that? I mean, what, what do we take away from that? Well, as, as I said, that sense of uh, uh, speed, I mean, you know, just to give you one, um, one gauge, uh, it's almost impossible if you're below about 50 years old at the moment uh, to try and tell anyone just how attitudes have changed to something like same-sex marriage. I'll give you an example. Um, if you're trying to trace attitudes to this, you won't find surveys from before about 1990 because it was such an outrageous question that nobody thought to ask it. Even in the 90s, very, very liberal uh, people, um, very left-wing uh, people, would not touch the topic and generally uh, just uh, did, not, did not approve of it. In, the, in 2021, it's almost the opposite, which is you have to be a real kind of far-right, crusty reactionary to, uh, to oppose it. That is a fundamental inversion of really what was for many centuries absolutely basic moral teaching in the space of 20 years. Things do change that fast, which raises the next question of, okay, you come back in 10 or 20 years from now, what will have changed? Well, that's an interesting thought. And it's, it's well, in some ways, it's quite disturbing. <laughs> um, just because of how fast things have changed, who knows how fast it could change before and, and the, the rates in which they're changing. And you're not just referring to the United States of America. One of the things that you, you really draw out is the fact that these attitudes are changing globally. What else can we learn from that? But the fact that it's not just a, a Western phenomenon, but these are happening the world over. Yeah. You see, um, when fertility rates dropped originally, uh, they dropped in Scandinavia and people looked at that and said, huh, this is to do with Scandinavia. It's to do with the kind of Protestantism they've got there. You know, interesting, but who else cares? Then it hit Catholic Europe. Uh, then it went to um, other, uh, other countries. And some of the countries where these changes are now most um, advanced in terms of the drop in fertility, drop in faith, are countries in, for example, um, Latin America. Now, if, if I was to stop many Americans on the street and ask about Latin America, they'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, they all have, you know, six and seven children and they're all kind of fanatically religious. Well, no. Um, in fact, countries like uh, Brazil and Chile and Argentina have got very European um, fertility rates. And one way in which you can measure this is the number of people who, if you ask them what their religion is, they say none, N-O-N-E, mm -hmm. the nuns, famous uh, thing in the United States. Very large numbers of nuns in Brazil, uh, Argentina, Chile, many, uh, many such countries. Um, many Americans, they might be aware of Brazil, and they think, well, there are lots of faithful Catholics there, but there's also this explosive new Protestant growth, and that's true. Really, Brazil these days has got three groups. They've got Catholics, they've got Protestants, and they've got nuns who are very, uh, very secular. Um, 
and uh, and the background to that is Brazil has a completely European um, fertility rate. You know, I, I sometimes ask people uh, to think what what is an example of like uh, you know a third world population growth, and um, India always comes up. Half the states in India have got replacement rates below um, have got fertility rates below replacement. Some of them are at European levels. I mean, that's shocking for those of us who remember all the stuff about the population explosion. So this is not just a Protestant thing. It is not just a Christian thing. It is a global thing. Or let me rephrase that, much of the globe with some important exceptions that we'll come back to later. Now, in mentioning that, you mentioned that the, that an older population has a tendency to be more stable. They don't join gangs. Um, and a younger population has a tendency to be much more tumultuous. Exactly. And, and, and in looking at that, though, and these replacement rates not happening, but yet at the same time, it seems like there's almost even an assault on the foundation which of human society, which is a family. Because if you're not having families, it's, it's really hard to have human flourishing. Taking the stats now, and I know it's hard to be a predictor because stats can change. There's always an anomaly. Factors can totally reverse everything. But what does the future hold for the, very, for the family? Well, for one thing, uh, as we have seen in the last uh, 20 years, the concept of family uh, changes, not least uh, through uh, changes like uh, same-sex marriage. You see um, far more people um, living alone. Uh, You see people defining their social setting not in terms of uh, blood kin, um, but but in terms of um, uh, larger networks. Um, and of course, uh, I know your you know your podcast is deeply concerned with issues of uh, of missiology. That's an absolutely vital background and context if uh, churches are trying to reach people. If you're trying to reach people at their uh, families and schools and places of work, good luck. That uh, they're, they're not so much there anymore. The uh, concepts of family um, have changed and are um, and are changing. Um, one of the sad consequences is far more people living alone. Um, families can be very restrictive and repressive places, but they also give very large support networks. Uh, many millions of people around the world are going to uh, have to figure out how to deal with that. And that's not just true in Europe and the United States. It's uh, true in countries in the Middle East and um, uh, Latin America. You know, the oldest country by age profile in the Western Hemisphere is um, is Uruguay. Um, it, if you have to deal with a country with basically old and lonely people, governments can't solve those problems. There's a whole new set of problems and opportunities for churches. Phil, hold that thought. We're going to be right back after a word from one of our sponsors. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner with them. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. 
It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. And we're back. In the second part of this conversation, we go down deeper. If Phil's findings are correct, and secularism is the direct cause of the lowering of birth rates in the world, what does that mean? How do we as Christians respond? Are we against secularism? Is there any time that we see it as beneficial? How come we as Christians don't talk about this kind of thing? These are just some of the questions that we're going to keep talking about. Let's get back to my conversation with Phil. So what do you see then as the churches need to do? I mean, I know, again, not a pastor, not a theologian, a historian by trade, but yet just looking at the demographics, what does the church need to reconsider? I mean, these are new realities. How do they deal with uh, the opinion that people have within a secular world when it comes to family, when it comes to, uh, I mean, even, as you said, different family setups, if that, uh, but not only not only just the, the foundation of family, but secularization, secularization itself. How do churches need to rethink even the mechanism of secularization? Because it seems to me we're looking at the byproducts, and I know you said it's hard to determine which one goes first, but it's my contention that some of these currents that carry us along, we need to address the very current, and, and we might be so caught up that we can't stop that tsunami. But I look at something with the gospel that it it confirms something in a culture. I mean, it, it confronts something in every culture, but it also affirms something in every culture. And so how do we then deal with this concept of secularization without becoming uh, methodologically Amish or monks in our hermitages? But how do we then engage that process and help people see that because in some ways, and, and you might disagree with me, but in some ways it's like we're caught up in it. There's some great things that have come as a result of it. And I don't want to, to, you know, throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater, but I'm saying is how do we then address these things and help people then incarnate the gospel and address these issues so that we might navigate them well? Any thoughts on that? Well, uh, a couple of things. Um, First of all, when a society uh, secularizes, as um, as we just said, um, one thing it means is if that's associated with declining fertility, with an older population, it means that there are lots of um, very religious um, immigrants who are uh, very anxious to be involved in different ways. And you could regard that as uh, a whole set of, um, of opportunities. So... Uh, it, it does not mean the churches are going to close, but they're going to be uh, putting up new signage representing uh, new languages and uh, new groups, and in some cases, uh, new faiths. So there's a, a new religious landscape uh, like that. It also means a society that is um, uh, is aging very dramatically, and that uh, you know should make people think very hard um, about how to speak to different audiences. If a church um, has very few children 
what is its uh, what is its emphasis? You know, I uh, I remember once upon a time going to one church and they had a um, a card that new members would uh, sign up, and it had uh, please tick your age category, and the highest one was fifty five and up, uh, which I thought was interesting um, because in um, in a few years there are going to be different ministries and services for fifty five to sixty five, sixty five to seventy five, eighty five to ninety five. And we're going to have to get used to these super old with their particular talents and uh, and needs. So there's a whole range of ministries to uh, to think through um, in that way. By the way, uh, I haven't mentioned this, but accompanying all this is a fundamental change in the way uh, economies uh, work. So you can no longer assume people living in, um, working in the same kind of factories and offices and working for long uh, periods. Employment is much shorter, much more, uh, much more casual. Um, how do churches reach people like that? Well, there were all sorts of uh, suggestions that you aim for networks rather than trying to reach families and workforces. But th- there are fundamental ways of uh, of rethinking uh, here, and I would also add um, one, which is if you look at Europe, you, there's a great deal of evidence that people are looking for kinds of spirituality and spiritual experience that are not necessarily associated with religious institutions. I think one example I give is we live in the golden age of European pilgrimage. A huge number of Christians who never, ever set foot in a church, have the slightest idea where a church is, um, make huge use of pilgrimages every year. And very medieval-looking pilgrimages of the Virgin Mary and saints with healing powers and so on. They are looking for something certainly true in Latin America. Well, that does not speak in any way to uh, Protestant America, but it does raise the issue of how do you respond to that kind of need without giving, uh, l- letting people indulge in, you know, really kind of uh, uh, foolish and out of the way ideas. How can you give them what they are looking for in that way? So I can give you a great series of questions, no, not necessarily so good on the side of answers. I understand because <laughs> there there are a series of questions and, and it's hard. I think everyone's kind of clamoring for answers because a lot of this has happened so quickly that it's it's it, we have to catch our breath and it's been hard to do that because things are changing so fast. Now, you going back for a second and you, you referenced this and I know you've written about this. There, in many ways, the confidence in institutions is at, and I, I don't want to say an all-time low, but it certainly seems that way, that people have lost their confidence in institutions. And yet, it's through those mechanisms that uh, people have been nourished for generations. Are the institutions completely lost, or is there an opportunity to redeem them in order to help nourish? Because we'll never be away from them completely. But yet, can we regain confidence in institutions in order to help people? such as with the, the church, the institutional, and I even hate using the term, but the mm. institutional church. Well, one of the things that uh, really does worry me is if you look at uh, you know, society as a whole, people have a, um, a desperate need to belong to not just uh, communities, but what, frankly, you can describe as um, um, herds or packs 
which uh, emerges when you look at what happens when a mob gets going on uh, Twitter and uh, thousands of people or millions of people feel the urge to uh, join in uh, in these very uh, very passionate and uh, sometimes very misguided uh, campaigns. So there, there is definitely um, an urge to uh, uh, to belong and uh, and share experience. Maybe the more atomized or decentralized a society is, uh, the more people feel the need to uh, uh, to engage in that. Um, some institutions are actually doing uh, very well. Um, you know, if if you look on uh, uh, on the global scale, for example, uh, in the United States, there are many people who are very critical of the Roman Catholic Church. They'll tell you it's in deep trouble. It's got all these internal problems. Sure, it has. Uh, its numbers are absolutely uh, booming. Uh, it is flourishing worldwide. Uh, in many places, it has the uh, terrible problem of having far too many uh, vocations to train all the people. Uh, it is doing great, just not in this neighborhood. Not mm-hmm. in the United States, but in Africa, in Asia, uh, the Catholic Church has no problems as an institution um, in that way. So maybe one uh, question is to look at a um, a global scale, uh, look where things can be um, achieved or saved or won, and uh, see what can be gained from uh, uh, f- from those um, from those parts of the world. Now, taking that into consideration, you refer to how oftentimes people think that the United States follows where Europe's at. But in many ways, the United States has proven an outlier and has bucked that because of a variety of different reasons. And I know you've also written written about how Christianity is grown exponentially in the global south. So here's my question. Is African or the global South, Christians in the global South, and I know it's hard to put them together as a collective, but just for the sake of argument, let's do so for a moment. Are they going to head down the same path of secularization that we see in Europe and in the United States? And uh, let's, let's take that first, then I got a second part to that question. Um, I've written through the years about Christianity in the Global South, which uh, traditionally means Africa, Asia, Latin America. One of the main things that has happened over the last decade is that, in a sense, the Global South no longer exists. You have very high fertility, high faith societies, above all in Africa. But societies that 20 or 30 years ago we would have said fit this exact model don't anymore. I'll give you a great example, the nation of South Korea. South Korea, absolutely explosive growth of Christianity, booming Protestant and Catholic churches. Everyone knows about the flourishing Christianity in Korea. Unless you start talking to Christians in Korea, where they'll tell you, oh, brother, we're in deep trouble. It's all to do with shrinking families, fertility rates. Nobody wants to do with the church anymore. We have this enormous increase in the number of nuns. Uh, Buddhists are almost vanishing. Uh, Christians are declining, but it's the nuns that are taking over. So there's a country that is a global South country, which is heading beyond Europe. It is much more secular these days Mm. than any European country. You could argue that some Latin American countries are heading in that same, uh, same direction. Where you have the big exception is Africa, where virtually every country is very high fertility, very high faith, whether that faith is Christianity or Islam. 
And if you project in the next 20 or 30 years, what's going to happen is not just an absolute growth in religious numbers in those countries, but a relative growth. So the proportion of the world's Christians or Muslims who are African will grow steadily. And, you know, barring a comet strike or something, nothing is going to stop that. So that was the second part of my question. Is, though, the if there was something to stop the bleeding, is it the immigration crisis or immigrants coming to the United States or Europe? Is that stop? Is it is that going to or could it stop the the flood, if you will, the leak? Could that plug that up or stop it for a? I mean, just for even for a temporary period of time. If you go to a uh, European um, city, um, you will find a lot many uh, a lot of very active uh, Muslim communities uh, and also Christian communities. Uh, you know, one example I always give is the. Um, uh, the top four mega churches in Britain are all pastored by Africans. Uh, mm. The leading mega churches in France or Belgium tend to be pastored by people from the Congo or Madagascar. Um, so, I mean, this is uh, this is certainly happening right now. Now, the big question, and I didn't answer this earlier, is how long can you uh, sustain that? Uh, you know, if you look at Africa itself, it's quite possible that in 30, 40, 50 years, It'll embark on that European direction. It'll become much more low fertility, secular society. Um, I don't know about that because that's way beyond any time frame I can reasonably uh, project. I can talk about the next decade or so, and it's certainly not happening. Well, that and you mentioned, even if they did come to the United States or Europe, and you'd mentioned this, alluded to it a little bit earlier, is that while they, as the 1.0 generation, might have the larger families, their children will become much more secularized or acclimated to that culture that they're living in rather than their home culture, correct? Yeah, and you you see a great example of that in the United States, where traditionally uh, Latinos um, where the new immigrants or established population used to be traditionally very high fertility, high faith. That came to a halt very suddenly with the economic crisis of 2007-2008. Uh, Latino fertility rates fell dramatically. Uh, so did Latino rates of religiosity. And the number of Latino nuns grew very steeply. So let's talk about the nuns here for a moment. What are the characteristics that you're noticing of the nuns world over? Right. Uh, they're very different in different countries. Um, nuns in the United States tend to be much more religious in orientation. And you'll see surveys that show that uh, many people who say, uh, you know, no, I don't have religious affiliation. Do you pray daily? Yes. Do you read the Bible? Yes. You know, America has very religious nuns right now. Uh, that's very different from Europe where if you probe, you'll find, what's your religion? None. Do you believe in God? Do you pray? No, 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 no. So you're much more likely in European countries to have a totally non-religious orientation. Now, one question there is, uh, is something like the American model a stage along the way? In other words, is the United States heading in that direction um, or is America pursuing its own path? I don't know the answer to that. Um, but in many European countries, you really have not just nuns. You have people with no religion at all, whatever. 
You know, uh, I'll just give you an example closer to home, or one I'm very intrigued by, is if you go to Canada, you know, the province of Quebec. Up until the 1960s, Quebec was legendary for being the most Catholic territory pretty much on the planet. It had people, uh, the clergy was so faithful and so conservative that the Vatican was usually trying to calm them down and tell mm. them to, you know, be a bit more, uh, be a bit more mainstream. Don't be so extreme. During the 1960s, Quebec experienced something called the Quiet Revolution, um, which just was a general set of social revolutions, liberalization, and Catholicism basically collapsed. Um, Quebec, by the end of the century, was one of the most secular societies uh, on the planet. And the big problem that they had was what to do with all these wonderful churches they'd built. And they became apartments or dance studios or carpet warehouses. And the only exception is those churches that are frequented by people from uh, Haiti and Africa and Vietnam, where you had all these good, uh, uh, good Catholic mm -hmm. people. But that that could happen to Quebec, and basically in 10 or maybe 20 years, I think should set up an alarm flare for people anywhere else in the world. This is Quebec. The, mm -hmm. the, the, this was not somewhere that was averagely religious. This was religion on steroids. So taking that into consideration, you're talking about religion on steroids. And of course, America has been known for that. The Bible Belt, known for its, its kind of resilient uh, faith entrenched in the culture. It's been part and parcel of the country since its very inception. And taking that into consideration, the current manifestations and the arguments within the church right now, specifically with on racial issues, and the criticisms that have been lobbied uh, at the white evangelical church, let's take that for a moment, um, and a series of scandals and, and uh, revelations of hypocrisy have beleaguered the church. And I, I don't think that's anything completely unique to the United States. I know you've also written about the abuses within the Catholic Church, and this is something that uh, people have noted. But in its current manifestation, is, is the American white evangelical church destined for demographical suicide? Oh, brother. Um... I would not put it in terms that are anything like so uh, uh, so raw. In some ways, I, I, I would sort of turn the uh, issue of scandals on its head and I'd say, uh, you know, some people look at scandals and think they drive church decline. I sometimes think it works the other way, uh, that people lose confidence in the church. Therefore, they're more prepared to speak against it. Therefore, they're more prepared to believe stories that are out there in ways that they would not have done uh, beforehand. You know, for example, uh, the um, sex scandals that affected um, evangelicals in the late 1980s had no noticeable effect on overall numbers of people declaring themselves evangelical. Okay, It was just felt to be something that was very bad, but it was a limited thing. I think you're seeing a larger trend, and that is manifesting in a willingness to believe and publicize uh, uh, these scandals. The racial issue, I think, is, um, uh, uh, is a different one. But I would see um, the, the white evangelicals as part of this larger, uh, larger phenomenon. Uh, one reason, by the way, why white evangelicals did so well in the late 20th century was they had significantly higher birth rates than mainline churches. So often they were having three kids while, say, Episcopalians or American Baptists were having uh, one and a half. So obviously uh, there were more 
they're more evangelicals, they were more Mormons, uh, and so on. That has not changed. And that changed dramatically, as I say, after the 2007-2008 economic crisis. So it's, it's a direction. It's not demographic suicide, but it is a larger direction. Uh, in many ways, a, I don't want to say a falling away, but you're, you mean you're seeing then the, the decrease. But what I'm trying to figure out is if evangelicals are having more children, it would seem to me that evangelicalism would continue on in a similar trajectory in its in its makeup, at least from a, a numbers standpoint. Even, let's go with your replacement I, uh, idea because they're having that many kids, but you're not. You're still seeing the numbers go down, even though they're they're traditionally having families going up. What what's the differentiation there? That they are part of the um, uh, uh, of the larger culture, and it's very hard to resist that uh, uh, that larger culture, and that's uh, that echoes through things like. Um, uh, women's roles, definition of women's roles, women in uh, the workplace, attitudes to uh, career and family. And when um, evangelicals do not live, you know, separate from um, the, the large community, this is just what's ha- happening to, uh, to America. In fact, the mystery is not why you're getting decline in American fertility. It's why it happened uh, a generation after Europe. And that's something that, you know, scholars can argue about for decades to come. But that, that's the real mystery. Is how it, 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 there's been a pause? That's what you're saying? How, how come yeah. it's been, had a lagging time? Exactly. So uh, what happened was in Europe, the great change happened in the 1960s and 70s. 60s for Protestants, 70s for Catholics. Then Americans spent a couple of decades saying, well, <laughs> that's not like us. We're stuck at replacement with this very religious country. And then round about 2007 or thereabouts, then the United States uh, went European. What was the shift in 2007? 2007-8 was a, an economic crash that had major cultural consequences it was devastating in particular areas, particularly in the South and the uh, South and the uh, West. It was ruinous for many working class communities who previously had been aspiring to uh, middle class status. That's white. That's uh, that's Latino. A great many people lost their homes. A great many people who would have been able to establish homes uh, otherwise were not able to do so. And the very traditional pattern of people setting up homes, uh, having kids, sending them to school, sending them to church, uh, was interrupted decisively. And that's where you see uh, a really marked change in American demographics. And that's where the number of nuns starts going through the roof. So the crisis then enabled nuns to increase rather than religiosity. Right. And the the follow-up question to that is, if you look at what happened in 2007-8, and compared to with what's happened in the last year, they're very, very comparable events. So my question would be, when people look back at 2020, will they see another dramatic shift there? And they'll probably say, oh, well, gee, the 2020 crisis was devastating for religion. And my response would be, well, yeah, maybe it was, but it was just continuing a trend that had been in operation for about 15 years before that. Did you think it just accelerated it? 
I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, you know, I, I use an analogy. Um, look at any trend in American history, whether it's business or retail or whatever, and look what's happened to it over the last year, how trends that had been moving very, very slowly, we're going to take a decade or two, were suddenly condensed into a year or two. So it's uh, I, I use the rocket sled analogy. Um, things that would jog along slowly suddenly move like a rocket sled. Uh, look at what happened to retail. Look at what happened to stores. Look at what happened to malls. The trends weren't new, but they were just vastly accelerated. I will be very, very interested to come back in a year or two and see what has happened to American churches and, and synagogues and mosques and other religious institutions. Do you think there's a way to stop the bleeding? I am not sure um, of that. Probably the, uh, uh, the worst thing to do is to keep applying Band-Aids. Um, I think what people need to do is to uh, look at the large trends in society. And maybe the worst thing they can do is say, aha, this is happening because of the church's failed response to this issue or this issue or this issue. And recognize that no, th this is a larger trend. Look at what's happening in other countries. Look and realize it's the same trend, and uh, uh, start planning on the basis for that. This is what maybe living in the twenty first century is. Do you think though that we're still headed in the in the United States that we're headed in the same trajectory as Europe now, except accelerated, where religiosity is on the wane and the nuns will continue to rise and the birth rates will continue to go down in the same way that Europe has? I, I think that's uh, very likely. And the, the analogy I use would be uh, Quebec is one example. Mm. And the other example I use, and I mentioned this as the book, is the nation of Belgium. It's not one of the uh, countries that's very well known to Americans, but it's interesting because traditionally it was among the most religious countries in Europe. It had phenomenally high vocations, church attendance. It was you know a near total Catholic country. Uh, the fertility rate collapsed, religious uh, practices collapsed, and Belgium became the most liberal country in the world in terms of social policies, in terms of approving abortion and uh, same-sex marriage and euthanasia, and uh, euthanasia extending to children. And in every one of those cases, the church fought desperately and said, you know, the, this is a terrible, terrible crime that's happening. And in every case, the church was ignored because it didn't matter anymore. And if you are not disturbed by that as uh, an example, I think you would be making a mistake. Because, it, well, I mean, even mentioning that, and I know some of our listeners are, are probably going right back right now trying to rehear what you just said. And you said not only euthanasia, but euthanasia for children. Right. So what age are we talking about? I, I can't give you the exact uh, uh, ages here, uh, but that was one of the most contentious. And the you know, the Catholic Church, you know, said desperately, "No, no, no, you cannot do this." And I think that I, I'm 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 speaking from uh, from memory here. I, I may have this Understood. wrong, but um, I, I I I forget if that was a referendum or a parliamentary decision. But if you uh, want an assisted suicide, Belgium is an awfully good place to be. So hearing this, I mean, in some ways, it's, you know, being, being a pastor, being a Christian, um, hearing some of this on one level is extremely depressing uh, to hear the stats. But 
there is always embedded in some of the most dire circumstances, hope. Where do you see hope as you're looking at demographics and you see this going around the world, the trends? I mean, where are the places where you see glimmers of hope? By the way, um, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to uh, cheat <clears throat> go back to the next question, uh, the last question. Sure. <clears throat> In 2014, Belgium became the first country to allow voluntary child euthanasia without any age restriction. However, a child must ask for the procedure and verify that they understand what will happen. The parents must also consent to euthanasia for the child. That's fairly wide-ranging. Anyway, if you believe in or are interested in religion in any kind of traditional kind, then uh, from a Christian perspective, uh, Africa is your place. The level of religious involvement, participation, passion, enthusiasm is near total. Um, and uh, as I said, you, you show me the, uh, the fertility rate and I'll tell you how well religion is doing there. Which is totally incredible. That's the, the marker. Because you mentioned this. It's the fertility line. That's what you called it, the fertility line. Rep uh, it's the replacement rate. Yeah, yeah. The fertility line is where yeah, that's at. But when, uh, no, and you know, you could immediately say, is this an unmixed blessing? Absolutely not. Because if a society is a very high fertility society, it is quite likely to be more violent. It is going to be poorer. It is not going to be as open on issues of rights uh, and uh, that Americans regard as uh, normal and essential. But if you are just looking at religious practice, if you look at that uh, figure, it is an awfully good guide. Hmm. So uh, taking all of those, and, and we're, we're, we're you know, only a little bit of time left here. I mean, w what else do you see with this? I mean, there are so much, just trying to take this in, trying to process that there's so much information that's here, the secularization aspect, the families, the religiosity, uh, I mean, globalism, globalization, there's just so much to take in and really try to interpret this data and where right. it's headed. But you were mentioned, you, you refer to it as a revolution. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and it's really upending everything that we see globally the world over and globalization has helped aid in that. Is there right. a way, I mean, how, again, I'm trying to probably searching for an answer here. How do we respond to that? Well, it entirely depends on uh, who you are and uh, what you're trying to do. So but just imagine, for example, uh, that you're running a business and um, that business assumes a particular knowledge of what families do, the age profiles you're doing, uh, you're dealing with. And these change totally. You have to absolutely restructure and rethink your business or you go out of business. Um, if you're running a school or a university, and the demographics change fundamentally. Uh, ditto, if you're running a church mm -hmm. and you're not putting these demographic issues and trends front and center, you will soon be running an ex-church. So it's, it's learning how to read the culture and how to not just read the culture, but interpret what we need to do in the lines of that. So those are, that's a good word. And also, just <laughs> do not reinvent the wheel. Look at what has worked or not worked in other countries. But the great mistake that people make is they'll see a trend in the United States and assume it's resulting from some 
change or development within the United States. You know, this church leader made this stupid decision and a consequence uh, followed. Fine. But if exactly the same thing is happening in Korea and Taiwan and India and Brazil, gee, it suggests that there's a larger trend at work and it really pays to understand that trend. Mm. That's good. I, and I think it's true. We, it, it pays to understand the trends so that we can, because, I mean, we have to, to rethink how we do what we're doing and be able to help and answer the questions that we see going on within our society rather than our own little just tribal issues, because our tribal issues in some ways are parochial in nature. And we need to be able to see and understand some of these global trends in order to combat the bleeding, because if we don't, as you said before, it'd be an ex-church. And it's, I think it's harder for many Americans to see this just because it doesn't seem that way in their immediate vicinity. So how can we help people to see these trends in a greater way? Um, because they don't necessarily, some do, but some are saying, hey, I'm fine right now. Things are going great. But yet we know culturally speaking that tsunami's coming if it's not already been there. How do we help people to see that? Well, you know, I, uh, I hate to say it, but one of the best ways to do it is to travel a lot internationally. And gee, that's not uh, uh, neither easy nor, uh, nor possible uh, uh, right now. Um, you know, one thing is to be very, very careful when making any kind of comments about um, the larger world or about, you know, America uh, d uh, does this and just think. And just pay attention to what is happening uh, globally and in a comparative uh, way. And you know, none of the material I'm talking about is hard to get. Um, if you want to find out mm. the fertility rate in a particular country, uh, you, you can find it in 30 seconds in Google. If you want to find out the rates of religiosity, you go to a wonderful resource called the CIA Factbook, which you can track down uh, easily mm. on uh, Google. You can put these figures together literally in seconds, but what I'm trying to do in something like my book is to offer people an interpretive framework with a number of slots into which they can put those uh, uh, those pieces of uh, evidence. And I go back to one of my original things, which is uh, know about history. Know that we have probably mm. been here before. Mm. Okay, where is that then? You said we've probably been here before. I mean, you're a historian. Where do you, where do you draw that inspiration from? Well, like I said, um, you, you look at the experience of a country like Quebec. Oh, it's not a country, bear with me. Uh, a province yeah. like Quebec. Uh, you look at the experience of that quiet revolution, that violent, dramatic overnight secularization in a society that was, shall we say, as religious as Texas. And then you mm -hmm. think, well, gee, it couldn't happen here. Well, uh, um, I wonder. You go to European cities and you see a landscape of churches and synagogues that are uh, out of business, that are used as commercial facilities, that have become mosques. And please do not understand me here uh, saying bad things about Muslims or about mosques. If they're using those facilities well, uh, all good fortune to them. But I'm saying they do represent uh, the landscapes of a church that is not there uh, anymore. And when you go to a big city in the American South and you see all these many churches that are still operating, ask yourself, you know, will they be like Europe in another 20 years' time? Mm. 
Well, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, I, I recommend the book to people, Fertility and Faith. If they want to know more about you, obviously, go on to Amazon. You've got a lot of books that are there that have been very illuminating for myself um, and actually helped me because uh, the church that I pastored when I started there, I've uh, been a pastor for 20 years, but my last church was uh, pretty ethnically uh, white, Caucasian when I started, but yet seeing how God brought the world to our neighborhood, we saw a massive shift. When I left, we were about 40, 45% non-white, and we had people from Africa and from Asia all around the world. And it it was exciting to see what God is doing, but at the same time, seeing these stats and seeing this shift makes us wonder to, want to know how do we then stop the bleeding, but ensure that the mission of God continues to go forth? And as you mentioned, in many ways, there is always a purification that goes on historically. And there is a, a uh, consequence of actions for those who have failed, unfortunately, and people lose confidence in, in institutions. But at the same time, I think that there is an opportunity there for people to rediscover the mission of Christ, to purify motives and and in wean the vine, if you will, so that the church might be able to be strengthened and that the mission of God might continue to go forth. And let me just uh, speculate that the uh, new communities who are in your church, um, boy, I bet they brought a really rich range of their own experiences and ways yes. uh, in and really did uh, revive. Yes, very much so. And we learned a lot. I mean, we learned a lot from one another. And, and I'm a big believer in that the gospel affirms something in a culture and it challenges something in a culture. And so I want to take those positive insights that were formulated there and their experiences and their understanding of lament and joy and celebration and how to endure suffering. And I want to incorporate those. And yet I also want to take some of the best of Western society uh, and, and, and what the church has done well historically and, and help introduce that to the, the, the global group that we had that's there to learn one another, to truly be the community that God desires us to be. And it's not easy, nor is it pretty. Um, at times, there's a lot of cultural misunderstandings, but this is where I think your work helped me to see what God was doing. And I just want to thank you for, for writing that and for putting out there and the work that you do, because I believe it is extremely important for us to understand that the mission of God might be able to continue to go forth. So, Philip, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much. It's a great uh, chance to chat. That was Philip Jenkins, distinguished historian and author, and it was great to really have him on the show to be able to talk about these things. How often do you get that opportunity to have a world-class scholar in front of you talking about stuff that is on the very edge I'm not talking about the stuff that people post on Facebook. They're posting his stuff. He's not posting other people's stuff. He's posting the stuff that's right on the fringe, the, the stuff that's right at the precipice. That's why I loved dialoguing with him and reading his book. And I understand that it's not a book that is for everybody. If you're not a person that likes a lot of data and stats, then this isn't the book for you. But if you love research and if you love what's going on and, and studying what's on the very fringe and coming up down the road, then he is your guy. I also want to thank you for listening and to let you know that if you want to partner with us, if you're grateful for this content, then why don't you become one of our monthly support watering partners? 
We need more watering partners. We are a brand new ministry and we are raising funds as we speak in order to be able to do this full time. We believe that God has called us to this. He has birthed it in phenomenal ways. We have sacrificed greatly in order for this to happen because we want to help you so that you can water your world. But we want to give you world-class content. We want to go deeper because today, if stats can be believed, and I believe that they can, is that people are hungering for more. They want more, and we want to give you more. I'm not talking about more information, but I'm talking about the real stuff going down deep in our world today and, and learning how we can confront that in the name of Jesus Christ so that you might become the person God wants you to be, that his kingdom might continue, and that you might experience joy for being and doing what he has called you to be and do. So go online to apolloswater.org, click the support us box in the upper right hand corner and pick the amount that you want to support us with. I also want to thank all of our team because this couldn't happen without our team. Kevin, Rebecca, Eliana, Donovan, and Melissa. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo's Water. Stay watered, everybody.